welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lisa Lenamore, and I'm the host of this episode. Today, I'm joined by Adam Fetterman, who is an assistant professor at the University of Houston. Adam is an expert on how people understand their social worlds and find meaning in their lives. And his work lies at the intersection of social, cognitive, and personality psychology. Today, we will talk about some of his more recent work on social cognitions and behaviors that are especially relevant in today's society. Hi, Adam. Thank you for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, we already met somewhat previously in the context of the European Journal of Personality blog, where you uh, discussed a paper of yours on doomsday prepping, uh, which was published in the journal. Can you tell me a bit about the research that you're doing? Yeah, so I would say that my research falls kind of at the intersection of social personality and cognitive psychology. And so I look at the social cognitive and personality processes involved with the self and understanding and belief. And that's kind of very vague in general. Most people might just call that social cognition, but I'm generally interested in how people come to understand their world and how they come to believe certain things. So a lot of my research so far has been focused on metaphor and metaphor use. So trying to understand how metaphors help us to understand our emotions and to feel empathy and, you know, how using metaphors is perceived by other people. Then I have a uh, program of research looking at nostalgia. And so most of the time I'm looking at the cognitive processes of nostalgia, like and how they help us to feel socially connected or feel meaning in our life. But a lot of my research these days has been trying to move towards things that matter in daily life. So over the past three years, uh, we've had um, COVID-19, we've had political unrest, uh, and we continue to have both of those things Uh, climate change. Me living in Texas, and we had a freeze, which basically shut down the electricity throughout Texas, and people were without electricity and water in Houston uh, for a whole week. And so with all of these things happening, and with the continued political unrest, especially in the United States, I've been trying to have my research have impact in the world. So I'm trying to switch into not getting rid of my general ideas or my general research on identity, understanding, and believing, but taking that research and putting it into context that matter for the world. So for example, what does Black Lives Matter mean to people? Does it provide meaning in life to people? And how do we stop or at least identify and try to stop mis- and disinformation from being spread? How do we stop people from going down rabbit holes into conspiracy theories that might lead them to different outcomes? How do we get people to understand that the vaccines for COVID-19 are safe and effective? How do we get people to understand that the earth is warming and we need to, to do something collectively in order to uh, face that challenge? And so a lot of my research has been moving into those types of directions, applying things that we know about science denial, all of these things, and trying to make the world a better place so that I have meaning in life. (laughs) I was wondering, because of course, this is the personality psychology podcast, and you do, of course, also implement and and have this this personality perspective in your work. How do you view this contribution of the personality field in your work? I guess I was kind of trained in personality psychology, that was what actually got me into wanting to be an academic was in my undergrad, I took a theories of personality class, a lot like all 
psychology majors. They, you know, I wanted to be a clinician. And then I took this personality class and I was like, oh, you could just do research on personality and that's your job. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what I want to do. And so I went into a personality lab, but my personality lab was definitely a person by situation type of lab even though we did create trait measures and th- and I still do that. But I, I definitely look at personality within the context and find that really interesting. One thing that we're looking at now is my colleague and I, Ben Wilkowski, we developed and did a lexical derivation of goal orientations. So we have the pint taxonomy of goals and the end taxonomy of vices, prominence, inclusion, negativity, avoidance, tradition. Those are the positive goal orientations. And then the end is elitism, rebellion, and disrepute. And so uh, some of the things that we're looking at in that case is how those goals that people have. So the positive ones we call values and the negative ones we call vices and how those goals impact people's belief systems. Well, at least that's what my part of it is focusing on. So looking at how It relates to political ideology, how it relates to religiosity, belief in a just world, et cetera. And so, you know, we're looking at how, you know, these goals lead to or perhaps have been impacted by personal experiences. Um, And a lot of the things that I do looking at metaphor is very personality based as well. So uh, as opposed to, you know, manipulating metaphoric associations or looking at metaphors, just kind of trying to impact people's thoughts, what we look at is metaphor use as an individual difference. So who are the types of people who use metaphors and what does that mean for them, how they process their emotions, how they process other people's emotions. So I definitely take a personality angle in pretty much everything that I do. It's just that I also then try to incorporate the social aspects of it as well. You already mentioned a lot of phenomena that have a lot of different sides and a lot of different facets that you can study uh, from different angles. And I was wondering specifically with a focus on the phenomena that you mentioned that are very relevant today. So for instance, the COVID-19 crisis, global warming. uh, What about these phenomena is particularly of interest for you? What what did you hope to learn about these phenomena in particular? Uh, for those particular things, for specifically with like the COVID-19 stuff, there was just so much misinformation and it was just a, a very, for lack of better words, interesting time for a psychologist, right? Because you're thinking about, you know, we have all of this information or we don't have specific information and it has led to such divisions in the way that we think about these things. We have the vaccine denialist. We have people that denied that COVID even existed. We still have people that deny that COVID even exists. And there's got to be something that they're processing personality-wise or through experience that is leading them down these paths. And one of the things that I've been really interested in terms of COVID-19 specifically and other types of science denial is the impact of personal experience. There's a lot of papers that came out over the last three years looking at variety of things that lead people down this path or this path. And a lot of them are really interesting things like political ideology or conspiracy beliefs, et cetera. But I think that we kind of forget about the the very simple thing is seeing is believing. You know, when you have personal experience with something, that's going to impact whether or not you believe it and how you believe it. So when the pandemic first started, 
we were starting to, uh, we were all just kind of by ourselves. We were locked in our houses, well, not locked in our houses, but we were, you know, sitting in our houses, trying to keep ourselves entertained, trying to not lose our minds. And we're told that there's this major threat out there, but it's very hard to see. So when people can't see it, that's going to lead to uncertainty. And so that uncertainty is going to lead them to question it, right? Because we want to have some sort of conclusion. And when you can't see something, it's a lot easier to deny it or to think of things that are easier to believe. So, you know, if I don't see anybody suffering from COVID-19, maybe it's a conspiracy to try to get people to stay inside or to mess with our economy or something like that. You know, for the longest time, we're shown graphs with curves on them and all of this stuff. But most people don't understand how probability works. Even trained scientists don't necessarily understand, you know, it's not that easy to to picture numbers, it is a lot easier to picture experiences. So other people's anecdotes are own anecdotes. And so people are just going to go with what they experience. And that probably led a lot of people down a path of science denial because they didn't see it. And the reason I'm talking about this particularly is because I recently had a paper published with my PhD student, who's now an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba. What we looked at is how people react when personality research doesn't match their own personality. This is kind of a classic, you know, experience for people that teach social and personality psychology. You tell the students about some finding and they're like, that doesn't apply to me. And of course, if it doesn't apply to them, that must mean it's not real. And so what we did is we looked at a finding that is Basically, every time I run a study with these two variables, you're going to find it. And so we published this paper looking at self-location and God belief. And so we ask people in a questionnaire, where do you locate your sense of self? And then we ask them how much they believe in God. And then on the next page, we said, you know, recent research came out showing that if you locate your sense of self in the heart, you tend to believe in God more than if you locate your sense in the sense of self in the head. And then we fed them back their responses. You said that you're a head person and you actually believe in God to a great extent. You know, it was their actual answers. And so just like in any type of scientific endeavor, some people are not going to fit the pattern of results and some people will fit the pattern of results. And for those who that didn't fit the pattern of results, they didn't believe the science. They said that that research was faulty. And so that's uh, where I'm coming from in terms of uh, looking at science denial and personal experience. And none of it's new either, by the way. This is Daniel Kahneman 101 <laughs> uh, base rate neglect and stuff like that. It's just that in this current times, you know, there are so many things, you know, that are related to science denial and conspiracies. And a lot of people are focusing on that conspiracy part or that political ideology part. And they're forgetting about one of the most easiest points of it is personal experience with the whatever it is that we're arguing about. How would you go about researching these personal experiences? Yeah, so we submitted a grant proposal and it wasn't accepted, but we're going to still run the we're still going to run the studies. We're just looking at how and it's harder now because, you know, so many people have gotten covid now. So when we did the the proposal, it was kind of in the midst of it. But what we were going to look at was how personal experience with COVID-19 impacts vaccine hesitancy. So if you haven't really experienced or you don't know somebody who's experienced it, does that change whether or not you are willing to get the vaccine? Because it seems more like a threat if you know somebody who's experienced it. So when we were proposing this, it was kind of in the midst. People were still trying to decide whether to get the vaccine. And 
a lot of people they're like i haven't had covid and i haven't met anybody who's had covid and then there was a lot of people who actually did get covid and it wasn't that strong and you know the symptoms weren't that bad and so they're like oh that's just the flu i don't need the vaccine for that and so i think personal experience is really really important and then of course living in houston you know it's a, it's a very big city and it's an extremely diverse city and so what we were also going to look at were zip codes and how location codes and how many cases were in that area versus how many people were willing to get vaccinated in that area to see whether or not there was some sort of correlation there. Uh, there's actually been a few studies now looking at personal experience with COVID and vaccine. So I'm, I'm not the first to think of it, but <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the way we were going to look at it. Really the experience with the disease in, in so actually really relevant experience in that, that context. Yeah. So personal or like a friend or a family member, uh, yeah. their personal experience. So how close was it to you? Yeah. We were going to do some construal stuff, you know, it's very close to me versus far away. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that you did a lot of doomsday prepping uh, work as well. What what about this, this doomsday prepping? Did you find or do you find particularly interesting or did you particularly want to focus on? Yeah, I have kind of a weird hobby. I like to learn about counterculture type things like doomsday prepping was one that I got interested in, of course. Um, but I also am interested in like cults and grifts, you know, cons. And I've recently been paying attention to like weird cryptocurrency communities and, and stuff like that. And so I just kind of get interested in those things every once in a while. And so when we started working on the post-apocalyptic and doomsday prepping beliefs, I was just thinking about how, you know, humans are, you know, we're naturally social animals. And there were these TV shows and, you know, some of them, some of them were like real life TV shows. Some of them were, you know, like Walking Dead and stuff like that. And I was just interested in how these people think about the world, like what that means for the world and how it's depicted on things like The Walking Dead and these kind of post-apocalyptic shows, what people think the world will be like. And if they believe that's what the world is like, then that might impact their current behaviors. And so that's what I was really interested in. And so my colleague and I kind of scoured message boards and television shows and stuff like that to kind of come up with some questions about um, doomsday prepping and post-apocalyptic beliefs. And then we were going to use that to correlate uh, with current behaviors and those and personality. And so we came up with it and, you know, and then we published that in 2019, I think. And then the next year, some weird apocalyptic things started happening. <laughs> and, uh, I experienced the COVID-19 thing, and then I had that freeze. And then in the midst of COVID, a big hurricane was aimed right at Houston. And it was one of those that things are going to hit the fan. So luckily, it veered off and did not come to Houston. But so much of my research on doomsday prepping and post-apocalyptic beliefs were about, wouldn't it be interesting if they were all like hypotheticals and not how it actually relates to the real world? And then of course, all of this stuff happened. And, you know, my measure comes down to three factors, which are concerns about other humans and resources. And then there's the kind of social Darwinist type of doomsday prepper who basically just 
really wants there to be a post-apocalyptic thing so they can run around and be like Walking Dead. And then there's just the actual prepping measure. And I was thinking about that in the context of all of these things, the COVID, the hurricane, the, the Texas freeze, and people might have a reason to feel to be concerned about the availability of resources because a lot of resources because of the shutdown of transportation of goods led there to be resource uh, scarcity and so people who were prepared for for that type of thing they made out well they're like well i already got all these things and then i started prepping i don't prep very much uh, i have a closet behind me that basically has all of my prep our prepping stuff in it uh, and everything ready to go because of hurricanes are always a threat here. But yeah, so it became very relevant. What we don't necessarily need is to be stockpiling guns and ammo because during all of these things, even though we see on the news media that uh, people were being selfish, hoarding toilet paper or trying to harm each other, that's not the majority of people. Majority of people were trying to be very helpful with each other. And so it seemed re really relevant. Um, but I also find that doomsday preppers and these um, people that have these post-apocalyptic beliefs also tend to be conspiracy believers. They tend to be cynical. And so that definitely is going to relate to things like science denial and where this uh, stuff comes from. That's really interesting because I, I do think that it matches what I was my own feeling that these these topics are in in a way related to each other is this also what you see from your research that in fact they are if not the same people at least um they share a lot of characteristics to a certain degree to answer your question i think there's a bit of overlap but but i think there's overlap in the sense of what the way that people process the information if that makes sense so everybody's exposed to the same information and people might come to the same conclusion but for different reasons and in terms of, of these two groups then of people so the the people who deny science and the, the people who uh, are doomsday preppers what did your 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 research teach you about who are these people what like what kind of people in terms of personality but also in in maybe terms of the motivations that they have is there anything that you can say about about these groups as a whole in terms of personality i think the doomsday prepper ones somewhat easy for me they those individuals tend to be very introverted they tend to be low on agreeableness so they're they're fairly disagreeable people and they tend to be high in neuroticism so they're kind of a combination of these traits that's going to lead people to question things they're low on actually they're actually high on openness to experience if i remember correctly because they'll listen to different ideas and but then they get close-minded when they actually make their decision so it's a interesting <laughs> combination there uh, they tend to be low on honesty and humility and high on social dominance orientation essentially they kind of fit the profile of other conspiracy mentality type of profiles in terms of science deniers there's a wide range of science deniers out there, including people who are very conservative and social dominance orientation and closed-minded. I guess that's another another feature of them. So there's those who they deny science, but then there's also kind of like naturalistic people who 
you know, have this kind of, if it's natural, it must be better or something like that. And so they deny science because science is kind of seen as evil. They don't believe in uh, genetically modified foods. They stay away from vaccines. So there's those types. There's the hardcore conservatives. And these ones tend to be more liberal. And then there's, uh, you know, just religious people. So a lot of religious people tend to also, they're going to deny the science. I think that there's all kinds of different perspectives on it, really, in terms of the traits that come along with those those features. And I guess there are parts of that very conservative group who are also very doomsday preppery. That tends to be the profile as well. They tend They tend to be very conservative. But there are also kind of the hippie, liberal doomsday preppers as well. They want to live off the grid, but they're often growing goods. They're not necessarily stockpiling weapons, but they're stockpiling food and growing their own food. And they tend to be more cooperative. And then there are religious groups as well. So for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons, they actually have it built into their teachings that you prep. And so if you go to the their website, they have a prepping page about how you're supposed to prep, right? So there's overlap in all of those areas in terms of doomsday prepping and science denial. And it's really interesting that, that, that actually these groups of what may, in the outset of, of what they believe, seem like a very homogenous group. But then actually, if you break it down, uh, they're much more heterogeneous. I do wonder in terms of what we can do or if we want to tackle phenomena like science denial, what can we do? And should that depend on the types of group that we are addressing? That's an interesting question because there's a lot of people that are out there trying to stop things um, and stop the spread of mis and disinformation, which leads to the science denial, which leads to the conspiracies or vice versa, whichever way it goes. So there's things like people who are going on social media. Do you argue with the people? Does that help? Well, people get defensive when you try to attack their beliefs. Okay, so do you tell them that they are spreading misinformation or disinformation? So, you know, Twitter and Facebook, you know, they put these little tags on posts that say, hey, this is about vaccines. If you want to learn the truth about vaccines, go to this site. Or it'll say something like, this is an unverified fact. This is not true. You know, take it with a grain of salt. Does that work? Well, they tend to su suggest that it does work a little bit. But to me, and I don't have evidence to show this, but well, first of all, uh, I would like to give people personal experiences. So instead of showing them infographics with statistics and stuff like that, give them anecdotes. So I believe Kurt Gray's lab recently came out with a paper that shows that when you're talking to somebody who's across a political divide from you or who disagrees with you, citing facts is not helpful. What is helpful is giving them anecdotes. So giving them personal experiences that they can then relate to tends to do a better job at uh, convincing them. And so what I would say is that if we are more vivid in the way that we describe things. We don't rely on people having to interpret CDC or World Health Organization graphics. That actually might be helpful. Or showing people suffering. I don't know if it's suffering from COVID or suffering from something else. It might be a little bit macabre or scary, but perhaps giving that visual can be helpful. The other thing that I think, and this is the one I really have no evidence on, so take that with a grain of salt, is interrupting 
the thought process. So when people go down these rabbit holes and they're using confirmation bias, like they're just going from video to video or article to article to prove their point or to learn more about this, doing their own research in air quotes, stopping them would be, I think, be good because it just seems to me that when you're in it, it's hard to see where you're going wrong because you feel like you're being completely logical. You're just following the line of reasoning. And so when you're in it, you're just, it's in your head constantly. And if we could uh, stop that for a minute, I think that would be very helpful. Let people have time to think or to think about other things. I think about the people, I, I'm in a run club, we run every Wednesday. I would say a majority of those people have no idea what COVID is going on right now. And that's because they're not constantly engrossed in the material about it. And so if you give some people a chance to step back and to think about other things and kind of live their life, when they come back to the information that they're, the missing disinformation or the conspiracy beliefs that they're uh, thinking about, they might start to see the holes in it. Perhaps that would be a helpful way to, to stop it. On the one hand, it, it seems very hopeful because it's, I think it's helpful in the sense that you can Im implement it in, in easy conversation. At the same time, it sort of paints a bleak picture for science. It seems like no matter what we do, no matter how strong the evidence and the, the graphs we come up with, it's not going to be the thing that helps. That's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't do the science, but it is kind of uh, disheartening that that probably isn't going to pull people over the line. I do also think you make a great point with, with the second way that you mentioned. I do think with these rabbit holes, the problem is often that you go down one and you sort of lose the field, like the, the, the entire breadth of the field. How, how to implement that, I think it would be very difficult. What are your thoughts? That is the, the question is how you get people to get out of it. Because you'd probably stop people, for example, Twitter, you know, suspended Donald Trump's account after the January 6th thing, trying to get people out that way doesn't necessarily stop them from thinking about it. So I was just trying to think of ways that we could do it. And I was, you know, see if we can try to force people to delete their app for a couple weeks or a week or something like that. Or even, you know, like these algorithms that recommend different videos or different articles or tweets or things like that. If you could find a way to basically follow a person's path, see that they are rabbit holing, and then basically interrupting that rabbit hole with a funny kitten video or a dog video or something like that, that, um, you know, makes that takes them out of it, that basically stops them. Of course, then they're going to say that that's a conspiracy against those beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it's a very difficult thing to try to understand and to and to try to mitigate. And I hope people are working on it. I'm going to try to work on it for sure. I know that there's a, a group of people that are definitely working on it. Like Jay Van Babel has been working on it. And um, I think there was a big competition recently. So a lot of people just pre-registered these interventions that they were going to use. And they uh, basically found, you know, which ones were the most useful ways to stop misinformation. Obviously, we cannot cover all the research that you do. And you already mentioned a lot of topics that you uh, you were working on. So I'm, I'm not going to try to cover all of them. But one that also seemed very interesting to me is the willingness to admit being wrong, because it's also, I think, very relevant in terms of today's politicians and 
media people and also, I guess, in daily life. So it's one of those topics where, again, I was just wondering how you became interested in this phenomenon in the first place and why you think it's relevant. I think the reason that I got interested in, in it to begin with is because I used to be the type of guy who liked to get into arguments online. And so, you know, I would be on uh, different social media sites. I, it was just kind of a hobby of mine. I liked arguing. But I noticed a phenomenon in which people refuse to admit they're wrong. They'll do everything possible to admit they're wrong, even when you know that they know that they're wrong. And so I'm like, why do people refuse to admit? And then what happens when people do admit? To be certain, when I talk about wrongness admission, I'm not talking about moral wrongness or apologizing or uh, making a mistake. What I mean is like, you hold an inaccurate belief or attitude, and that attitude has changed. And do you express that publicly to people? So this is a form of intellectual humility that is uh, in the realm of public displays of intellectual humility. So I was just really fascinated. And when I was doing my postdoc in Germany, my uh, postdoc advisor said, you should start a line of research that we can work on together and I said, well, I've been thinking about this wrongness admission thing because it seems like people don't admit they're wrong. And yes, it is super relevant now. And so we're actually picking up the pace on our wrongness admission research to look at things that are more relevant to the current situation and how wrongness admission can help stop the spread of mis and disinformation, allow people to be more empathetic with each other, and to show that wrongness admission is good. Because what we show over and over is that if People like you more if you admit that you're wrong. A lot of people, when I ask them why they don't or why they might refuse to admit they're wrong, they all say, because I'll be embarrassed. And so what are the social consequences of admitting you're wrong? And all of our research shows that it's positive. You know, admitting that you're wrong is a positive outcome. Of course, if you admit you're wrong too much, people are going to think you're dumb because you keep admitting that you're wrong because you keep being wrong about things. But when you're in an argument, we find that people like it when you admit that you're wrong. And so you mentioned the the fear of, of being embarrassed and, and maybe having other people think that you're stupid uh, could be one reason for having a low willingness to admit to being wrong. Are there other factors that you found were predictors of of people's willingness to admit being wrong? Yeah, so we created a willingness to admit wrongness measure, which was published at Personality and Individual Differences. And what we found was that people who are willing to admit their wrong score are high on honesty and humility. They tend to be more agreeable and they tend to be open to experience. So those are kind of the three main factors that predict willingness to admit wrongness. Right. In that sense, not very surprising. What What is the most remarkable or unexpected or or just noteworthy finding that you have on this topic so far? Yeah, we haven't done a lot of, well, we haven't published a lot of research. Uh, for some odd reason, even though people always really like the research, they're always like, yeah, but it's not right for our journal. So <laughs> we've had trouble getting some of it published. But so far, we've found that because uh, in the midst of the replicability crisis in social psychology, there were... A lot of people, when they had something fail to replicate, they got really defensive about it, right? They're like, oh, you know, you're treating me poorly or something like this. And what we found is that if they admit they're wrong, people will think they're better scientists. And so that was kind of our first run at that. The one that we published recently was on Facebook. So basically, we had strangers rating 
a Facebook argument. And at the end of the argument, the admit a person either admits or does not admit they're wrong. And what we find is that people like the person who admits they're wrong more and are more willing to interact with that person in the future. Now, the, the surprising one is that we recently, and this is not published yet, it's under review. So I'll just give you the basics of it, but basically show that when politicians admit they're wrong, they are liked more and supported more even by people on the other end of the spectrum. So that's even the case when it comes to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So if Donald Trump admits he's wrong, it doesn't matter how much you dislike him. You like him a little bit more when he admits he's wrong. It's really nice that it's really across the board, people on Facebook, scientists, but also politicians that just admitting you're wrong is, it seems to be always a good thing. Yeah. Except so, if you do it too much, apparently. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things that we were trying to do now is trying to get people to admit they're wrong. And how do you get people to admit they're wrong? Well, you have to show them that it's okay. One of the things that we're trying to do is like show them an abstract from one of these papers that we published showing that wrongness admission led to positive outcomes and seeing if they'll admit they're wrong after that. I think social modeling is the best way to get people to admit they're wrong. And maybe just learning about the research might help. I know that I said earlier that people don't pay attention to stats and figures and stuff like that, but we could use it in anecdotal terms. <laughs> exactly. So I guess then one way in which people who want to learn uh, how to admit their wrongness, one way of, of for them to learn that is uh, listening to this podcast, of obviously listening to you describing this research and describing it in different situations, which hopefully will sort of count as an anecdote. What are other ways in which people who want to become better at this could learn to do so. Like I said, I think the social modeling is good. So just, I know it's something they can't do, but um, seeing somebody admit you're, they're wrong and positive outcomes happening from it is probably going to be the best way to do it. But other ways to do it, I think, is to try to practice intellectual humility, try to engage in the conversation in a way that allows yourself to be wrong don't not going into a conversation or debate trying to prove that you're right but trying to understand what's what's happening i think that's very difficult for people to do because they have kind of the ego invested into it but i think that's the best way and then of course practicing it don't admit you're wrong all the time but when you have the opportunity to admit you're wrong, do it and then realize nothing bad happened the world didn't end when you admitted you're wrong and then you know, you're going to do it more in the future. One of the things that we study in the lab a lot is empathy. And I think that empathy, when it comes to doomsday prepping and post-apocalyptic beliefs, conspiracy beliefs, racism, sexism, any other type of isms, science denial, empathy is kind of a key thing because trying to understand that people are generally good and that they also have emotions and that most of the time people are well-meaning can maybe interfere with some of the the bad outcomes or the things that that we see when it comes to those types of things okay so maybe empathy might be a big factor to study in the future as a sort of protective factor yeah yeah so that I mean, that's a lot of what we're doing when it comes to uh, looking at metaphor uses, looking at empathy and seeing if we can apply those to societal issues. So, yeah, I think that empathy is important. If you look ahead, what projects or papers or collaborations are you most excited about for the upcoming time in your own work? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm very interested in, just submitted a proposal on it, was looking at how those pint and end taxonomy of goals predict what people pass on 
in terms of information. We are starting out in the terms of religiosity, but like if you have to take like a biblical story or a religious story and pass it on to somebody else, because that's how religion gets passed on, of course, is through cultural transmission. Based on your goal orientations, what is the information that you pass on, right? Do you ignore certain pieces of information when you're passing on these stories or or highlight specific aspects? That's kind of one of the interesting ones. My lab does a lot of natural language processing, and so we're looking at the language of nostalgia and using language to predict how people go down rabbit holes on Reddit and stuff like that, trying to analyze that language data. And so those are kind of the interesting things we're doing on the, along those lines. I think the science denial stuff is kind of my most exciting thing, is really just looking at how personal experience is impacting science denial and adding that aspect of personal experience into the current theoretical models of science denial. Like Bastian Routins has paper highlighting the like a theoretical model of science denial. And I'd like to see how I can fit personal experience into that one so that people can use that as a way to study science denial uh, in a wide variety of areas, whether it's climate change or COVID-19 or any other types of health emergencies. So good things ahead. Yes. And are there any broader developments in the field that you're particularly excited about to just see unfold? I think one of the things that I find in, that I'm finding interesting now a lot is work that is trying to expand how we think about issues of race and gender in terms of diversity and inclusion. A lot of research in the past has been about perceivers and how perceivers are this type of prejudice or this type of stereotype. And now looking at how we can mitigate those things or looking at the experiences of those who are oppressed is, I think, very important. And I think uh, one thing that's coming along with that is the globalization of our science. So people who are trying to get at populations that aren't studied very often, trying to get researchers in the field that are from areas of the world that have not been represented in social and personality psychology. I think those are the types of developments that I'm pretty excited to see because I think we're going to learn a lot more with these broad viewpoints than some of the previous research even the, the, I mean, I'm not saying the previous research is bad, but I'm just saying that getting this kind of global view is, I think, is going to be very important. Getting this broader perspective on all the things that we've studied before can only help us better understand the phenomena that we're studying. So that's yeah, going to be very exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me and answering all of my questions. I really enjoyed our talk today. All right. I enjoyed it as well. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast and chat about the research that I'm doing.